Good morning, church. I'm excited to be with you guys here this morning to go over this passage in uh, John chapter 2 and his passage, uh, in this passage about Jesus cleansing the temple. Now, for those of you, if you have been with us for a few years, you might recall a similar story when we studied Mark. Um, man, that was about three years ago now. And, uh, you know, so if you don't like today's sermon, I invite you to go online and listen to that one. <laughs> Daniel preached that one, I'm fairly certain, so it might probably very well be better. Uh, but I am really excited to, to preach through this today with you guys. Uh, I've been really enjoying, I hope you are, have been as well, our study through John so far. Um, John, you know, is, you know, w- w- one of my favorite books, definitely my favorite gospel out of the, out of the four, because um, it's just so rich as far as what John is communicating. And you guys will remember so far, if you've been with us, or if you haven't been with us, let me kind of really quick give you a synopsis so far. Um, in John 1, you know, the prologue, Will preached that about four weeks ago. And you'll remember in that, the big thing, John starting his, his, his gospel off with declaring that the word, who is Jesus, has come in the flesh, and we know him, and he is God, and he, is God, and he has come, he's revealed his glory to us. And John's really amped up as he starts out his book. I mean, he starts it off unlike any other gospel because he declares all this theology about how amazing God is and how amazing the word is, Jesus, Jesus come in the flesh, making this awesome declaration. And then he starts into the story about, that meant to explain and make us believe in this Jesus, that Jesus is exactly who John just has declared him to be. And that is the whole point of his gospel. In fact, he summarizes it near the end when he says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is God. And then at the end of chapter one, the rest of chapter one, you have the the, um, declaration by John the Baptist declaring who Jesus is. You have Jesus uh, finding his first disciples and them declaring who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the son of God, that he is the Christ. And then we started in chapter two last week. And in chapter two, there's a little bit of shift in the narrative because now we're talking about the things that Jesus is actually starting to do. And we have the first of Jesus' signs. John records seven different signs, they're miracles, that Jesus performs. Now, if you've read any of the other, if you've read the other gospels, you'll know that Jesus did much more than just these seven miracles and signs. But these seven signs, John picks specifically for purpose in order to help the reader believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the promised one. And so the first sign happens at the wedding of Cana. And we read last week about how Jesus just at this feast and basically they run out of wine. And as Daniel described last week, a wedding was meant to be a multi-day celebration. It was like the pinnacle sometimes of, of what would happen in a town in a year. And it would be considered a very bad thing to run out of wine, like kind of like a bad form or bad luck, even like your, your marriage might suffer if you like blow this wedding. Okay? So, you know, Jesus' mother, Mary, comes to him, tells him that they've run out of wine. We don't know if there was a relation probably here or somehow Mary feels responsible to say, we got we to gotta help them out. And so after a statement to Mary, Jesus comes back and he basically has the stewards fill these old ceremonial cleansing jars full of water and it turns into wine as they go to serve the steward and not just any wine 
but the best wine, the best tasting wine, a wine truly meant for a feast, a wine truly meant to signify that something new is here. The party's here because God, he is, God, because God in the flesh is here. That's the symbolism there as we ended that section. And now we have this story. So if you haven't already, turn with me to John chapter 2, starting with verse 13. And we're just going to take a look at what does the text say. All right. So it starts out with the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, Passover was a once a year celebration. All right. In the book of John, there's actually three different Passovers that is mentioned by John. The third one, or the last one being when Jesus came and the week before he was crucified. Okay? So this happened, apparently, a couple of years before then. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem because back then when the Passover was come, it was a tradition for many Jews, most Jews, if you were able and were able to make it happen, you would go on this trek to Jerusalem because in Jerusalem was the temple. And the temple was significant because that is where you went to worship and that is where you went to make your sacrifice that was meant to be the act, meant to represent the act of Passover where God had passed over the Jews back in when they were captives of Egypt. It was meant to celebrate this, this miracle that had happened back when Moses was delivering the people from Egypt. God promised Egypt that he was going to send because the Pharaoh would refuse to listen to him, refuse to let the people go. He said, I'm going to send the angel of death and every firstborn son in the whole entire city is going to die. And the only way that the Hebrews, that the Jews were spared were if they put the blood of the lamb over their door. And then the angel of death would pass over that house, hence the name Passover. And in celebration, they would, the Jews every year would bring a new sacrifice to the temple for their, to basically atone for their sins, to ask God to spare them. It was meant to be a representation of sparing their sins, salvation, uh, asking for forgiveness for their sins. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem with his, with his disciples to celebrate the Passover. And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now we read that and, and you might wonder like, okay, well, yeah, clearly like, you know, it's bad form to have like, you know, oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers in a, in a like if we had all that going on in here, you guys would be pretty distracted. <laughs> right. So, you know, you would wonder what the heck is going on and like, yeah, no, no question somebody would come along and want to drive those things out. But you got to understand a couple things going on here. One, like I said, it was tradition for the Jews to come and they would make a sacrifice. Well, where do you think they got those sacrifices? Not everybody had a farm. Okay. Not everybody had oxen or sheep or pigeons that you would sacrifice to, to have that blood atonement that would be required for the Passover feast. So they had to find them somewhere. They had to buy them somewhere. And we know by historical records that it's very likely that there was, there, there's some historical records that suggest that Caiaphas, which is, who's one of the high priests at this time, actually had a debate with other members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, about whether or not it was appropriate to have these offering, these, these, the, basically these sacrifices available to be bought for right there in the temple. And based on this passage, Caiaphas won that argument because now there's oxen and sheep being sold into the temple. 
so that they could make sacrifices. And then there's money changers sitting there. Now that's the other thing. You're like, money changers. Like, why are there money changers? Well, you got to remember there was a specific tax, a temple, da- ta- temple tax. There, I said it. Temple tax. That was recorded. That was also part of the, old tra- the traditions and the laws that people would come and they would pay a tax to the temple. Now, you couldn't just, you got to understand, there was no, like, you know, in America, it's really, in America, it's really easy to pay somebody, right? Like, I mean, like, well, it's even now easier with electronics, but that's a whole other story. But, you know, even before you had electronic banking or stuff, some, I know all the young people are like, what, that existed? Uh, you know, you had cash, and everyone worked with the same amount of cash here in America. Everyone in the U.S., it was easy. Like, I give you a dollar, you know it's worth one dollar. You're not going to look at me and be like, what's that worth? Like, what is that? Okay. But the problem back then is that money wasn't, as, wasn't so uniform. Okay? They had the Roman, they had, you had the Roman Empire, and they had their, their set of currency. Okay? But then you had the traditional currency of the land that they would have used. But then even more so, you had a specific currency that was meant to be for religious purposes. Okay, a religious currency. So in order to figure out, and, and then you have people, you have Jews from all over the place, not just Israel, traveling to this place. So who knows what currency they're bringing? Okay? So you needed a way, because you had to pay this temple tax, to pay the right type of coin, you needed a way to convert whatever money you had brought into, you know, the coin that you could then pay the temple tax. So it wasn't just done to kind of like, you know, like, oh, we're going to cheat everybody. Like, the Jews at the time were were seriously trying to make it so that, like, hey, we, we have this set up, and now, you know, you can just pay it this way. But obviously, it doesn't sit well with Jesus. It's verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, one of the first questions that popped in my head, and I'm going to be honest, I looked, I really don't have it. I really wanted to know what this whip of cords looked like. Like, you know, like, what, like you know, first off, I, I'm pretty sure it's not an Indiana Jones thing, okay? So, like, you know, don't think Indiana Jones here with this whip, bow whip, just, like, smacking things. Probably, like, a short little, like, you know, they called it a scourge then or something like that, that he's basically using just kind of, like, thwap to kind of get people or get them out of there. And specifically, here's the other thing. Notice when, it, when, he, when he says he drove them all to the temple with the sheep and oxen. More than likely... Okay? Because people have a big issue with the idea, with the view of like, you know, okay, was Jesus really like just smacking people upside the head with his whip? And to be honest, we don't really know because this text would seem to suggest that that very well could have been the case. Or he could have just been using it because how are you going to get sheep and oxen to move without a little bit of force? Okay? So he definitely used them for the sheep and oxen. That's probably pretty clear. Whether or not he gave a few people some good swacks, swacks in, the, in the meantime... Isn't as clear. But the point is, he's getting them out. And then he goes to the money tree, he pours out the coins and overturns their tables. And then he tells those of the pigeons, he, he doesn't, he's nice. He didn't swat the pigeons, that would have killed them. But he tells those of the pigeons, take them out of here. And then he says this statement. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house 
of trade. Now, there's a couple things here that I want to address. First, that statement that he makes, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade, is quite different than the account that is in the other gospels of Jesus cleansing the temple. And while I'm on that, let's talk a little bit about something that if you've studied your Bible well and you study all the different gospels, there will be something that is off with this whole story and where it's placed in John's gospel. Because in every other account, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the cleansing of the temple happens that final week of Jesus' life. That's essentially what Jesus does after he rides into town. He goes to the temple the first day and he clears everybody out. But we know from the Gospel of John that this isn't that week, or at least it's not meant to be that week because that doesn't happen until much later in the book. So the question comes up. All right. You know, and this is a question that people have problems with because they look at it and they be like, well, then the Bible is just contradicting itself about when it happened. And there's two things I want to throw out there for you as possible explanations of why this is the way it is. But first, let me just say this very clearly. In no way at all do I believe, or would the church believe, that anyway, is, there, is, is this being placed in here a mistake? Okay? This isn't an incorrect move. This isn't John just forgetting. Okay? Instead, it means there's one of two reasons for why John wrote this in the way he did. First possibility is that there were two different times that Jesus cleansed the temple. This one would, as far as, if you are a very linear thinking person, this is going to be your favorite explanation. (laughs) That Jesus simply cleaned the temple, cleansed the temple twice. That he went up there one year, saw this going on, cleared it all out. It said, you know, this isn't meant to be this way. And as we'll see later, the response he gets is more one of shock, like, did you just do that? Wait, who are you? And the story goes on. And then a couple years later, as the other gospels record, as Jesus is there for the final, he goes there. And it's not like Jesus, we know Jesus spent most of his time in Galilee. So it's not like he was camped out in the temple. So what do they do? They, they came back and they set back up. You know, just because he cleared it out once doesn't mean that from then on they were going to listen to him. They don't even know who he is. They don't believe in him. So they set everything back up, and he came in there a second time and cleansed it out again. And this time called them a den of robbers, a den of thieves. And that time they got a little more upset. <laughs> and then they start plotting to kill him. So that's one explanation. And honestly, like, I'm going to be real with you. Like, out of these two explanations, I'm kind of torn eh, about 40, 60 on them. Because I don't know which, because I can see it being either way. So I'm sorry. If, if you're looking for a surefire answer on this one, I'm sorry. I'm not giving it to you. I read a, I read a lot this week. I read a few different commentaries, and they didn't give me a clear-cut answer. They gave me one answer, then they gave me another, then they gave me this one. They were like, yeah, this is the evidence for both. The second explanation is that there was just one cleansing, that Jesus, this happened one time. And then in the, when, you ha, when you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those gospels, those men wrote that gospel to be more of a historical account of how things were going. 
But as we talked about with John's gospel, John's gospel is a little different. Not that it's not historical facts of stuff that happened, because it is. But John structures his gospel in order for what? In order to prove and emphasize Jesus is who I'm saying he is, which he is God in the flesh. He is the word made flesh come to us. So John has a very specific purpose with his gospel to basically make this case and make this argument for who Jesus is. And with that in mind, it's not that John forgot where the cleansing, when the cleansing happened. But, this, but the, the idea behind this theory is that John knew when the cleansing happened, but placed it in this part of the story because it better, this part of the gospel, of his gospel, of his book, because it better fit the themes that he was trying to get across during this opening section of his book. And the reason why I think that where Samaria, you guys will see later, is we talk more about the context of John chapter 2 and where, and where John is going with his book and where he's going as far as his arguing about who Jesus is. So that's why I think it very well could be that case, that John knew when the cleansing happened, but he records it here because it's more about the message behind the cleansing for John than it is about when it happened. It happened. But he wants it to put it here because the message behind Jesus cleansing the temple is really important to fitting into the context of what he's saying. Everybody confused now? All right, good. <laughs> if you have more questions about that, please feel free to come and talk to me. Like I said, um, I'm sorry I can't give you a, I, I, you know, I wish I knew for sure, but I didn't get a chance to talk to John um, this week. So, um, yeah. But it is worth a note, and like whether, whichever one it is, it is worth noting that Jesus' statement there in verse 16 is different. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The reason why I think that's important that you remember that statement, and if you, if you, and as best as you can, forget the statement made in the other gospels about the den of robbers and den of thieves. And there's a reason for that because for John, Jesus' cleansing the temple isn't about the fact that there's obvious deception going on or obvious deceit going on and that these guys are just evil people. For John, that's not the reason why Jesus cleanses the temple. He just says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And then this next statement, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. See, for John, it's not so much about It's not so much about whether or not um, the the what the you know whether or not the people were were deceiving the people or not or outright like you know stealing from the people or not. The fault in what they're doing is that they're not focused on God in it all. The fault in it all is that it is meant to be a distraction. That they're so caught up in the rituals of what they are doing that they are forgetting the whole purpose of them being there. They're so caught up with the details of how are we supposed to make this sacrifice and what are we going to sacrifice and how are we going to do this tax and how are we going to pay this tax. They're so caught up in all the details that they're forgetting about where they're at and why they're supposed to be there and who this is all about. That's what gets Jesus so fired up. So he clears it all out of there. 
He's not saying don't make sacrifices. He's not saying don't pay the temple tax. We know Jesus paid the temple tax. We have records of that in the other gospels. He's saying, you guys aren't getting it. This doesn't belong here. This place, it's my father's house. It's about him here. So we continue going on with verse 18. So the Jews said to him, like I said, they're kind of confused. They don't get angry. No, there's no text about the, him being, them being angry here. He says, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Okay, so the Jews want a sign. In other words, prove to us that you have the authority to say this stuff. Show us your authority. And his statement in back, he doesn't give a sign, but instead gives a prophecy, gives a promise, makes a declaration. And in making this declaration, he's basically making, he's making a declaration about who he is, although they don't really get it, that that's what he's doing. If John 2, if the very beginning of John 2 is like Jesus' first sign indicating who he is, this is one of Jesus' first statements about who he is in the book of John that we get, that we get from him. And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Again, they're not getting what he's saying. They're really confused because they're just thinking about this big, huge building that has literally been getting slowly continued to be built and, and improved upon for 46 years. Herod the Great, back around somewhere between 20 B.C. and 16 B.C., started building this temple. And it took them four years to construct the temple as was. And then from then on, they continued to add things more and more, especially as different people came in, whether they were ruling Israel at the time or whether they were um, just governing Jerusalem or the priest or whoever it was, kept making additions to it because the temple wasn't even considered fully complete until I think it was like 64 AD. So even past this point. He's like, it's taking 46 years for them to get to the temple to this point. You're going to destroy it in three days? Like, they don't get it. They're just thinking of the physical building. How are you going to knock this thing down and build it up again in three days? And then John makes his comment here, because John, having lived this all and knowing this all, he says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So in other words, it's almost like one of those things that even the disciples, they kind of follow this way as something that Jesus said, and they're not even totally sure what he meant at that time. Until the resurrection happens. And they're like, oh, I get it now. And, the Holy, and they get the Holy Spirit and it really becomes illuminated in their minds. But Jesus is talking about the temple, when he says this temple, he's talking about the, his body. He's talking about himself. So he says, you want a sign for what I'm doing that I'm authoritative? It's coming. He doesn't give it to them there, but it's coming. And then the end of the chapter, these last couple of verses. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Once again, notice they saw the signs. Even John indicating that there, there was more miracles being done, just not ones that he recorded details about. But because of the signs he was doing, many believed in his name. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, 
and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It ends on this interesting note that many are believing in his name, and yet Jesus doesn't entrust himself in them. And kind of what that's saying is basically this idea that he is not telling them or, or giving them commands to, okay, now therefore go and tell everyone else about who I am. Basically, he's not telling them, like, you know, go therefore and, like, make more disciples right now. Because right now, as he knows who man is and as he knows these people, he's essentially saying, I, I know what's in your heart. I know that you're not the ones who are meant to be my witnesses. <laughs> I know how folly and, and, and how easily swayed these people are. And we, and we see that even, like, later in the Gospels, if you think about it, like, you know, in Jerusalem, you have one moment everyone's celebrating and, and all excited about his coming. And then five days later, they're all chanting, helping chant to get him, get him crucified. Um, so we see how easily swayed people are by what they're seeing, what they're hearing and everything like that. And basically this is kind of a Jesus statement of saying, yeah, you know, I don't need you. <laughs> I, I, I'm, he didn't need man's testimony at this point because he knew what, the, what was going on inside man. So as we look to summarize, kind of what does this text mean? It'd be easy to say, well, it just means that Jesus cleansed the temple and he promised to be raised from the dead. But there's so much more going on here. And really, like I was saying, we really need to keep this in context with what with where John is going with this gospel and where he's been going with this gospel and what he was even talking about, what we were talking about last week. Remember in last week's story, we talked about the, about the fact that um, Jesus used old ceremonial jars, stone jars, to, be, to that he poured the water and that was turned into wine. And these old ceremonial jars were used for ritual cleansings, were part of like basically the Jewish religion and customs. And Jesus taking these old things and turning it into a new wine using them as a miracle, is very symbolic in him saying that what has been is, is, is no longer of, any, of, of true usefulness. There's something new coming in that, that, is, that is real and that is, that is here that you need to be aware of. And in the same way, when we look at the cleansing of the temple, when we look at the story and we try to ask ourselves, well, what does this text mean? It's not just as simple to say, well, Jesus cleansed the temple because people were bad. What Jesus is doing is basically taking a look at where the Jewish religion is. Now he's in the temple itself. He's in the place, the pinnacle, the center of it all. And he takes a look at it and he, and he cleanses it out saying, what this is, is not right. The old way doesn't have you focus where you need to be. And then when they ask for a sign, when they ask for authority, he turns it into declaring himself as the new temple. See, the meaning of this text is basically Jesus' statement of the idea that what was been with the old temple, the old religion, the old way of like trying to connect to God, that is being made new again. But now it's being made not new through a building, not through a new building, not even through a new like, way that the building is going to be run. It's being made through a new person, that, be, that person being Jesus Christ himself. And that's where 
this passage is really hinging on, this idea that the new temple being Jesus Christ, this is the new way that you are going to connect to God, that this is going to be the new way that you are going to be in a relationship with God. It's no longer going to be about rituals. It's no longer going to be about making sure that everything is perfect as far as your logistics goes. It's about a relationship with the one who died and raised from the grave. So as I was thinking about this passage and what it means and this meaning behind it and, and the old temple becoming, and then Jesus being the new temple now, I started asking, you know, how do we naturally resist this? When I started looking at this question, you know, it's, it's a little bit challenging at times because we really tend to naturally like kind of um, distance ourselves because just we're so different from the way the Jews were back then. So we really distance ourselves when we look at them and we're like, yeah, well, yeah, like no question Jesus cleansed. I mean, look at them. They were a bunch of dummies. Well, just be real, like, you know, they, they messed a lot of things up. It's real easy to be critical about that and kind of say, like, well, yeah, of course it's not about, you know, ritual and, you know, everything being, like, succinct or whatever. It's about God. It's about worship. It's about truly actually connecting with him and Jesus. And so we tend to, like, have trouble sometimes connecting to a passage like this. But I really want to challenge you because I feel like I was really challenged as I was as I was studying this, that if you find yourself distancing yourself from this thing, in the or at least looking at it, and by distancing, I mean looking at it as, a, well, that was their thing. You know, you look at what they were like. Well, yeah, those Jews were really, they had a lot of issues. Uh, it's really dangerous. Because we have to remember, and what I think we need to remember, is that when Jesus came into the temple, came into a place of worship. He didn't come into a place that man had just thought up one day and said, hey, I think we're going to make a temple. Let's make this where God is and let's make up these rituals or make things things. All this stuff had come from God. It was in the scriptures. He had given this to Moses. So he comes to this place that had been established through his word And that is what Jesus critiques, is what man has now turned it into. And I think we would be arrogant to just assume that that was a Jewish problem only. I think we'd be arrogant to assume that we are incapable of making the same exact mistake in taking what Scripture has taught us and turning it into because we are men, because we are humans, because we are flawed people, turning it into something that is more about us and less about him. See, true worship, the idea of true worship is something that is a totally selfless act because it's all about God. And yet, I really believe this because I know it's true in my own heart that so often, there are elements of my worship, there are elements of, of what I, I, I call worship that if I really analyze myself, if I really analyze my heart, I know is selfish in, in, its, in its nature. That it's about how it makes me feel. That it's about how it makes me look. My attendance at church is about what others is going to think about me. 
my prayer or my or whatever it is is about what I need. The kind of the kind of the 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 selfish feeling that Jesus that God can give me. I, I just want that. And that's what's driving me to come here today. Or that's what's driving me to, you know, whatever it is. I think we would be really arrogant to not confess to ourselves, to not admit to ourselves that we naturally resist this. Because by doing exactly what the Jews did in their time when it came to what God had given them, which is turning something more about what makes us feel good, makes us feel like we're living this out the best way we can because, you know, it makes us feel good. Oh, yeah, we're, we're better than those other churches out there because look at what we do. Those type of thoughts, those type of mentalities, that's really, like, we got we to gotta realize that they come from a selfish place. They come from a selfish heart that wants to feel good about who we are, feel good about ourselves. If, if, you, if you never have, I want to encourage you this week, read the uh, first three chapters of Revelation. Jesus writes a letter to seven churches. Because if you're having a hard time thinking, no, Jesus was just critiquing the Jewish traditions of their time, he wouldn't, you know, come into my church and critique us. Read those seven letters. And you're going to see Jesus right into churches, by the way, and churches that were probably more connected, to, like closer connection in terms of timeline to him than, than we even are. You know, churches that probably were planted by either his apostles or, the, or disciples of his apostles. And he writes to these churches and he says things like, I, I just want to spit you out of my mouth because you are useless. Like, that to me doesn't seem like we get a pass because we're the church and we're not the temple. That to me tells, us, tells me that we have a responsibility and we need to realize where we naturally resist this stuff, where we naturally make worship, where we naturally make church about us and turn to Christ. Because that's really where then it heads. Is it like, how is Jesus the hero? How does he accomplish or do the things we naturally resist? When we look to Jesus, when we see what Jesus did in the Gospels, first off, I think what's amazing about Jesus is that he is the one person when he came here on earth that had every right because, as John points out in John 1, he is, you know, the author of creation. He's you know, through him all things have been made. He is God made flesh. He has every right, if anyone does, to come in a room and make it all about him. Because it is. All those people in that room exist because of Jesus. Because of the work that he did. And yet, what do we constantly see in Jesus in the way that he acts and the things that he says? Instead of making it about him, he points to the Father. Instead of doing things that make him happy, he serves and heals the, heals the sick, heals the broken. Instead of going and having a party with those that he considers to be the holiest people that are around, 
He goes and hangs out with sinners. Try to claim the lost. Jesus, more than we ever could, had reason to be selfish, had reason to make it about himself. Because it wouldn't be considered selfish. It would be considered just worshiping the one who made us. be considered appropriate. And yet, he shows us what selflessness is, and he, make, and he submits to the Father. He shows us that perfect act of submission. Submitting to the Father, making it all about him, all the way up even to his death. Showing that he was willing to obey the Father even to the point of death. And then what that does for us as well, the fact that now we have Jesus who has been raised from the grave, now we have someone that we have with us who, you know, John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory and glory is of the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt kind of means like tabernacled. It has a lot of connection to the temple, to the idea of being within us. And where that goes for now is with the Holy Spirit being sent, from, being sent by Jesus from the Father to us to where now we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. How is Jesus the hero? He allows for us because of his sacrifice. Because what his sacrifice did for us is make it so that our faith then makes us justified in God's name, which then allows for the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us. That can't happen otherwise. We're way too sinful. And you know what God can't be around? Sin. You think the Holy Spirit really wants to live in that? He doesn't want anything to do with it. And yet he dwells inside us. Why? Because Jesus' righteousness is alive in us through our faith in him. So what Jesus has accomplished for us, he's made it so that now not only can we come to a place together and worship him, but we actually have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. We have the living God dwelling inside of us. That's what Jesus has enabled for us. That's what he's given us. So how does that empower us to obey what it says and means? How does this how, how does Jesus being the hero, how does him giving us the Holy Spirit, how does this empower us to live out of this passage? What, what, what is, I guess the point is, what is next? What comes next for us? I think the, it's really important for us to look at the example of Jesus and model that act of submission. And really ask ourselves, where in my life Am I actually submitting to the Holy Spirit and what he wants me to be and who he wants me to be and what he wants me to be doing? Or am I really just doing this because this is just what I want to do? And I'm not talking about just everyday life because that's definitely a big part of it, but that's the easy parts. I'm even talking about the stuff that you claim to be doing for him, that you claim to do as a good Christian person. What's your motivation for that? Because it has to start there. If it doesn't start in our worship, us surrendering to Christ, then it's never going to happen 
when we're out there supposed to be witnesses for him. And I would even challenge you saying, if you're struggling in that area of life, if you look at the rest of your life outside of the walls of this church and you tell yourself, yeah, I'm not really being a witness for him every day. I'm really not spending much of my day thinking about God and Jesus because I'm too busy with work. I'm too busy with kids. I'm too busy with whatever it might be. I would challenge you that that's probably because when you look back at your worship and what's going on with your times that you're supposed to be really dwelling in Jesus, you, those times are really about you anyways. And that there's something missing because when we submit ourselves to truly the Holy Spirit and truly allowing Jesus, truly making it all about him, man, it's an infectious thing. It's going to start to change you. That's something that just doesn't just like come turn off and on. When you're really exposed to it, when you really allow your heart to be exposed to it, it changes you. And it's something that you want. And if you're struggling to want it, look at your worship. Really ask yourself. Really challenge yourself. What, what is my worship looking like right now? Luke 2, or Luke 2, what? <laughs> I didn't write the slide. I'm not going to close the name. John 2, summary. John 2. <laughs> Sorry, that threw me off. I totally reviewed this. I don't know why I missed that. I'm, that's all me. That's on my fault. All right, John 2, summary. This is important because when it comes down to this stuff, when, you know, it's easy to, like I said, I, I, the last thing I want to ever do is end things on just a down note because I know that what we, is Jesus has made something so beautiful, so amazing, that he promised us such hope to, for things to be different. We have such hope that things would be different. And we see that in John chapter 2. You see it again and again. You see the old jars being turned to new wine when you look at the wedding of Cana. These old ceremonial jars that were just all about ritual and cleansings and, and had just become a, a, a thing rather than true worship. Jesus turns it into a new wine that's, gonna be, that's meant to represent a feast we are going to have one day with Christ himself. Jesus takes the temple and he cleanses it. And he basically points to this old temple, this old way of doing things, saying, you guys are missing it, you guys are missing it. But there's going to be a new temple coming. And you are going to have, not only with, through your faith in me, you are not going to have that indwelt inside of you. And then the end of the chapter is so critical, not so much in just what it says, but where it's going and, and where we're going to be going as we continue to study through John. Jesus' observation of man, old man, he gives this, that statement for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, it ain't good. <laughs> Just, there's no other way to say it. It's not good. But there's so much hope because what Jesus is about to say next, where, where he's going next in chapter 3, is going to just totally make it all come back around to like, this is where he's going. This is what he's getting at. There's a statement that Jesus is going to make when, he, when we talk about the study with Nicodemus. I'm not going to take away any of Daniel's thunder, but... That 
unless someone is born again, he shall never have eternal life. Born again, new life. That's what we have promised through Jesus. And that's where I really want to close and end you guys and encourage you guys. If thinking, if you, one, first off, give yourself that critical analysis. Ask yourself, what is my worship looking like? What does my life look like? Am I really submitting to the Holy Spirit with my life? And if I'm not, I need to start with my worship, submitting to him. But be encouraged, but know that don't despair in that because know that through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, he can create in you a new heart. He can create in you a new person. He can continually renew you and make you into someone that he dwells inside and lives out of. That should excite us. That should make us passionate and excited to be used by him. Because there is... Nothing sweeter in this life than to be living in obedience to the Holy Spirit. I truly believe that. I'm not saying it's easy. Not by any stretch of means. But there is nothing more rewarding that you will ever do in this life other than submitting to the Holy Spirit. I promise you that. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for just who you are. I thank you for your son, Jesus, and just the amazing example that he is. I thank you that we see in him this perfect submission to you. That he submitted himself all the way to the point of death. And that through his resurrection, through his victory over sin, Lord, we now, through our faith in him, have the ability to have your spirit live inside of us. Father, I pray that we would truly be reflective this week. We truly be asking ourselves, how are we worshiping? Who are we living for? Lord, I pray that we surrender to you. Pray that we submit to you. That we truly look to make our lives about you and not of ourselves. Pray all this in your son's holy name. Amen.